0: pray for a moment. God, I know that that to sing those words takes tremendous courage. I just thank you for your spirit in us. I thank you for the opportunity to declare to you that even though life may be crazy, even though our world may be chaotic, even though things aren't going our way, that we can say, by faith today that is well with my soul. I pray now that you would inspire us as we hear from your word. You'd give us ears that would hear what your spirit wants to say to each one of us in the room. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat now. That'd be great. Thanks so much for engaging with us and singing so well this morning. So I want to encourage you right now, if you would, to go ahead and grab your Bible and open it to John chapter 2. That's where we'll be today. And so that would be a place where you can, you know, open your Bible. You can take some notes in your Bible. But also, uh, you can grab your message notes. They look like this and uh, all the bible verses i'll use will be on here and also you can take notes uh, about things that may god may bring to your mind as we go through our time uh, together now we're in this series called unleashed hope hope unleashed and we're talking about uh, encounters with jesus so as folks had encounters with jesus that they would see him and then as a result of seeing him that they would be inspired to have hope themselves because of their encounter with him. Uh, what I haven't made a big deal about uh, is that in this series, what we're doing is, is we're walking basically through the entire book of John uh, and this in, this throughout 2017, I'll get that out, 2017. And so we actually started at Christmas where we did Advent and we went through all through the first chapter of John. And then at Easter, we went to the last two chapters of John. But most, we're going to cover most of the book of John this year. So I thought, well, because we're covering the book of John, wouldn't we like to know what John was writing about? So I thought, well, let's just begin by talking about the theme from John and John's purpose. And he actually gave it to us. So we didn't have to guess. It's in John chapter 20, verse 31, right at the top of your notes. He says this. He says, these are written so that you may continue to believe, I would say begin and continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him you will have life by the power of His name, and I put His purpose there in the bold print. John was written to reveal who Jesus is, so that we can respond and receive Him. To reveal who Jesus is, so that we can respond and receive Him. So as we go through John, uh, basically for the rest of this year, different times and different ways and different formats. Uh, my encouragement to you is that you would realize that each week what we're wanting to do is that we want to re- have Jesus revealed to us so that your eyes would be open so that you can see him so that you can respond and then you can believe in him so what we've done is the last couple of weeks we actually began with Easter and uh, John 20 and 21 and we looked at the fact that Jesus brought hope to the discouraged and then last week or two weeks ago Pastor John started this series Uh, with John chapter 1, and he talked about the calling of the disciples. And as he called them, uh, they were along the wayside, and maybe some of them might have been living listless lives and needed some vision, and he called them to a life of adventure. And so they jumped onto the call, and they chose to follow him. Then last week, Pastor Mark did a great job of talking about the turning of water into wine. And so he came into a situation, people were still unaware who Jesus was, and behind the scenes, in private, he did his first miracle. And in doing so, he lets them know that he will be the Lord of the feast, and he will be the one who brings great joy. Now, I find this quite humorous, actually, as I was thinking about this. So Jesus begins his ministry at a private event in Cana by expressing himself as the great party maker, okay? So the great party maker. So you see that? Jesus, they ran out of wine. He takes water. He makes wine. He's the kind of bro you want to have at a party, right? So he's a great party maker. But today, unfortunately, for me, my sakes, I'm looking at that, he changes his tactic and expresses himself at a very public event as the great party pooper, okay? So that's where I know what Jesus does as he comes into this scene that we're going to look at today in Jerusalem. In this account, we're going to see a side of Jesus that some people really struggle accepting. It's a Jesus who sets himself in opposition to the people and religious rulers and the religious system of his day, those who had built walls, and those walls were keeping people from experiencing God's grace and God's presence, keeping them away from the place where God had offered himself so people could know him. Now, even though the story we're going to look at today, there's some questions about chronology, because John records this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but the other three apostles... By the way, all four record this event, so it's pretty important. All four record it, but John puts it at the first of his book, where the others put it more towards the end. Some scholars actually think that there were two cleansing of the temples that happened at this point. But it shows Jesus' heart and exposes... Uh, what he's about is, he's can't, is he comes to expose the religious leaders and what they were doing in his day. Now, most of the encounters we're going to look at, they're going to, they're going to come at this whole idea of encounters with Jesus from the positive side. So Jesus has empathy. Jesus has compassion. And so, you know, we'd all want to know that Jesus. But this one comes at it from a different way, from a different angle. And this encounter of Jesus focuses on his zeal and his anger. You know, most people don't like the angry Jesus. We like the empathic, compassionate Jesus. But Jesus had both sides. And his anger and his zeal was directed at those who had been been given responsibility to bring people to God. But in fact, what they were doing is that they were condoning a culture that built barriers, walls, obstacles, and kept people away from God. Now, folks, as we just began today, this is not just a message about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Unfortunately, God's people still build walls that keep people from experiencing God's presence. Now, some of the walls that exist that keep people from experiencing God, one might be an economic wall. And so that someone would say, well, I can't go to church because they all look so perfect, they all dress so well, I don't have the clothing that would be required to go there. That's why Twin Cities, we're a casual church. You know, we want everyone to feel like they're welcome here no matter what they have to wear. And it's not about just you know, reaching a certain economic strata, but all people can come here. But sometimes you go to church and people say, I don't want to go there because I don't have the right things to wear. And so economics keep them from going. But here's the biggest thing, I think, in our day-to-day, is the political leaning. Is that some folks say, well, you know what, if I go to that church, I have to be a Republican. If I go to that church, I have to be a Democrat. If I go to that church, I have to be a Green Party or Independent, whatever it happens to be. And so what's happening today is that people are associating political parties, churches with political parties, and they feel like, well, if I don't believe that way, then I can't go there. I can't go there you know and another one would be like cultural and re- and ritual observances so you know when they when someone comes to church there's a culture there where it's all for the inside group it's all designed around rituals that everyone who comes knows exactly what to do but if you don't know what to do you don't know have a clue and so that's what happens and so they their walls are built because people don't understand what happens inside the building of a church and then there's also religious rules and regulations and if I keep these rules and regulations, they define who's in and who's out. You know? And so we come in, we measure people by you know, how they keep our rules, and every church seems to have their own set of rules and regulations, and they kind of wall people out. These are man-made walls that keep people from experiencing the presence and person of God. And so, folks, what I want us to do today, what I want to get today, is that sometimes Jesus is going to turn water into wine, and he's going to bring great joy. Sometimes that's exactly what what he's going to do. On other occasions, Jesus' approach is to turn over tables, to upend things, to make things chaotic, and to show and to make us uncomfortable. Sometimes that's going to be the Jesus that we encounter. And today what we're going to look at, we're going to look at the Jesus who upends tables, who makes you uncomfortable. So I'm going to begin chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, after the wedding, so John's, you know, juxtaposing these two events together so after the wedding he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother his brothers and disciples so now we're about a week after that event it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration so Jesus went to Jerusalem so Jesus is now going to celebrate Passover at Jerusalem this is the first of three Passovers he's going to experience you can read through the book of John. As we go through this, we're going to come up on the other two. But this is the very first one that Jesus, as part of his public ministry, is observing Passover. Now, according to John, the story happens right after, about a week after he turns water into wine. So Jesus calls his disciples to a life of adventure. The first thing they see is he, in private, turns water into wine. And I just happened to think, if I was a disciple at that point, this is awesome, I love this adventure, I love what we're doing here, this is really cool, I'm glad I signed up for this, and now they're going to see Jesus in a totally different way, this is the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Jesus, okay, so they're going to see him in a totally different way, and it's going to take everyone by surprise and make everyone very uncomfortable. So the story today happens at a time called Passover. So Passover was a celebration that God had initiated that his people would observe, where they would then now come to Jerusalem, where they would offer sacrifices, and then sometimes they would pay temple tax. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But basically, Jerusalem was a city of several hundred thousand people, and at Passover, it would swell and grow to somewhere around, scholars say, 2 million people. I don't know if you can imagine this. Several hundred thousand to two million people as people made their pilgrimage to the city of David to offer their sacrifice. Now, to get an idea of what this might have felt like in Jerusalem, I just want to ask, how many of you have ever been to Disneyland or Disney World? Okay, so you've been to Disneyland, Disney World, okay. And when it was so crowded, you could barely move. Okay, keep your hands up. We all know that. And you're crowded together on a hot summer day with thousands of other hot, sweaty, smelly, impatient people, ever done that? Anybody's done the Disney thing, have probably done that. Now, my daughter has an app on her phone for Disney, and so we were able to go this spring. And so, while we were there this spring, then she would have her app and she'd pull it out, and we looked at the beginning of the day how long the the wait was going to be for the rides we wanted to be, and we were so disappointed. ...to see that we were only going to get about two rides that we wanted that day. And, and I'm sitting there thinking about this whole thing. I realized I just spent a year's salary <laughs> to wait in line all day? This is crazy. And so that's why Kim, she grew up in Orlando. Her brother, uh, Kevin, who's a very you know, very funny guy, he calls this the Disney Death March, Okay. So that's why it's a Disney death march. Woo! So, but no matter how I tried to frame my uh, trip to Disney, I, tr- I tried to frame it around my 60th birthday, all those things. No matter how I try to frame it, I can tell you, when I'm at Disney, I'm not the happiest person at the happiest place on earth. I'll just tell you. That's just not the way it works for me. Maybe for some of you, you can do that, but not for me. But that just gives you a glimpse of what the people were feeling as they were coming into Passover in Jerusalem as Jesus joined them at the temple. Now, Passover was established by God as a time of remembrance. And so what his people were doing is they were remembering the time when God set the people of Israel free from the Egyptians and the death angel came over and everyone who had placed blood over their doorpost passed over and then they were allowed to be free and then God's people were actually then able to go to the promised land. It was a time of confession. This is what it was supposed to be. A time of confession, a time of sacrifice, a time of worship, a time of intimacy with God. Does that sound like what I was just describing? That was happening. See, people traveled from hundreds of miles to offer a sacrifice for the cleansing of their sins. And sometimes what they would do, as I just mentioned, they would also choose this time as the the opportunity to pay their temple tax. So let's talk about sacrifice first. The sacrifice of a lamb required a perfect lamb, perfect lamb. And so out of, I'm sure, best intentions, out of convenience, and as a way to serve the people, I'm sure this is how it all began, the priests established the means by which the people could purchase their perfect lamb right on the spot. Now, I'm sure when they began this, their hearts were in the right place. Because you can imagine, folks, just thinking about this, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I have to offer a lamb for a sacrifice, and I've got to travel maybe hundreds of miles with my lamb, and I just one, that I'd actually make it there with the lamb, that would be a miracle, and then as I'm going with the lamb, that I would get there, and it would be uh, a perfect lamb. So see, even if I did choose to bring a lamb, and I actually made it there with the lamb, the priests, they were the inspectors. And so they would expect the lamb to make sure it was perfect. So after going to all the work to get there with your lamb, the priest could, at their discretion, arbitrarily disqualify your lamb. They could do that. They could do that. So the people, I think, were happy for a simpler, more convenient solution. In order to help, the priest set up a business where you could buy a certified pure lamb right there in the temple. Okay, so they raised lambs, they set up a business, and they, you could ra- buy this certified pure lamb right there in the temple. But over time, they lost their purpose. They lost their purpose. And what had happened is that this lamb business no longer was a way to serve the people and to make it convenient for them and to offer their sacrifice. It had become a money-making venture and it was all about profit. God's people were coming to them and coming to this place to find God and instead of serving the people they were the priests were serving themselves. They were serving themselves. Now the same is true for the temple tax that was uh, required for every Jewish family to pay. The temple tax could only be paid in temple currency. It's just the way it was set up. So we have Roman day, Roman currency. So when you want to pay your temple tax, and that's how they funded the temple, and the priests were able to live off of this. And so they were required to pay a temple tax. So the temple tax, was the requirement was that they had to pay it with temple coins. And so they couldn't pay with their Roman coins, so they actually have to exchange them. It's kind of like going to 49er Fun Park. You go to 49er front Park, I take cash, and I get the cash. They give me what? Tokens. And then I use my tokens to play games. That's kind of exactly what's happening here. And so I've got my cash. They give me temple money, and I'm able to actually pay my temple tax with my temple money. The deal, though, is this is what happened, is that the priests had started charging exorbitant exchange fees. So not only did they you know, probably have a racket for what they would exchange it for, but they started ch- adding a fee on top of that. Like if you go out of the country. Say you're going to go to a foreign country that's euros. You go to the airport. While you're at the airport, you take your American dollars. You exchange them for euros. They charge you an exchange fee. Problem is here is the exchange free fee was exorbitant that they were having to pay. And so all of this is going on, and then here comes Jesus, his very first Passover, his ministry. Now, it might help for some of us to see exactly what the temple looked like. So here's a, a, a model, as accurate as it can be, of what the temple looked like. And I don't have a little pointer deal here, but you've you got the big walls, very ornate, big walls. And then you've got the flat areas, and then you've got the, the actual temple itself in the middle. Well, the flat area is called the Court of the Gentiles. The Court of the Gentiles, everyone could access whether Jew or Gentile, and this was designated to be the place where Gentiles could come and worship and pray to God. It was a holy place. But what happened is, is that when Jesus walked into there that day, the court of the Gentiles was full of money changers and animals. It was chaotic and crazy. It was not a place of worship, and it was not a place to go to. And pray to God. So that's what Jesus walked into. And just to give you a better uh, taste of what it was like, I'm going to show you a clip. This is a clip from the movie, The Son of God. And in this clip, we're going to see Jesus as he goes into the temple, what he experienced, and then watch him as he upends tables and the response of the Jewish leaders. So let's watch this. written wait is it not written my house my house shall be called the house of prayer but you you have made it a den of thieves who are you to tell us this We teach the law, not you. You pray lofty prayers and love your shows of piety in the temple. Hypocrites! Oh my! So, we saw a disciple, right? The disciples are going, I like making water into wine better. And so, Jesus, can we go back to that ministry? And then we saw the religious leaders, and the religious leaders are going, Who are you that you did this? And we're going to come back to that in just a little while. And we just see the, the intensity, the tension. We see what Jesus did. And what I want us to do is, I want us to pick up two things from this story. I think if we can pick up these two things, then all of us will be able to understand where we are the religious and in what God's called us to do in this world. Okay, So two things. First is this, is that Jesus confronts the religious with his unrestrained passion. So Jesus did what he did because of his passion, and it was unrestrained. He just let it out. And that's the way he lived all the way to the cross, unrestrained passion. So let's begin with verse 14, and this is what it says, talking about the event we just saw. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes. Now, you just got to know, the scene, the depiction we just saw was from one of the other gospel accounts. It's not from John's, and so that's why it left out the whips, but this is what Jesus did. He actually made a whip from some ropes, and he chased them out of the temple. He He didn't use the whips on people. Okay, he used the whips on the animals. So if you guys are familiar with the old series, Rawhide, you remember the cracking of the whip? yo ha doggies, get them. That's what Jesus was doing here. Okay, so he was driving the animals out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, and he turned over their tables. Then going over to the people, who sold doves. He told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace, and really the term is emporium or a place where you go and they gouge you. You know, it's just not the guy, you know, like the market. You go to the market and you realize there's the price and you dicker down to the real price. So, this is what was happening. He turned it into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures passion for God's house will consume me. This is a prophecy from Psalm 69, 9. You might want to write that down. Look at it later. Psalm 69, 9. And that word consume, it could have been translated as devour me. So you see how intense this is. It devours me. It seizes me. It makes me act. So passion makes me act is what Jesus is saying here. Now, if this event would have happened in our day uh, with you know, our devices and social media, it would have gone viral instantly as you know people were filming it and watching kind of like the Delta and United things have happened lately. you know it just goes viral the minute it happens. The deal though that as Jesus is doing this he 's right in the middle of the father's will, right in the middle of God's will. Jesus was offended by the fact that those who had been designated by priests, the ones who were there to facilitate and leads God, lead God's people by their actions into worship were actually creating obstacles and barriers and walls that were keeping people from God. The people that God had designated to lead folks to God were taking advantage of the people of God, and Jesus was angry, and he was going to make things right. And when Jesus shows his passion here, folks, this is just foretelling of the cross, is that Jesus came with ultimate passion to, that those on earth would know the Father's love and that from the day he started his ministry, he was always moving, always looking for the cross. He was always moving to that place where he would die on the bat behalf of the sins of all mankind, that they could be brought into relationship with God. He always had the cross before him. That was his passion. And this was the beginning of his passion being expressed, that this is what God is all about. And he was angry at the religious leaders because they were the ones who were supposed to be directing people into relationship, into the presence of God, but instead they were creating obstacles to worship that were keeping people away from God. Jesus was mad. He was ticked. But it showed his unrestrained passion. The second thing this story shows is it shows his unlimited authority. Unlimited authority. Now, I also want you to write down another word, undeniable authority. So it's not only unlimited, so it has no limit, but it's undeniable. There's no question Jesus is an authority. No question of that at all. So Jesus' anger was fueled by his authority. But the Jewish leaders, as we saw there, they are the keepers of authority. And they weren't about to let go of control to anyone, even God. Even God himself. So what authority did Jesus have to overturn tables? Well, here's the deal, folks. He was the owner. He was the owner. Jesus says, you have made my father's house, a den of thieves. When he has said my father's house, he was saying, it's also my house. If it's my father's house, it's my house. That's what he's saying there. He's making a statement that this is my house as well. And folks, only the owner has the right to overturn tables. Only the owner has the right to rearrange furniture. If you come over to my house and you're a guest, you walk into my house, you're going to see this a hodgepodge of all kinds of eclectic things that we've accumulated over the years that we found at some point to be sentimental and memorable. You're going to find this cluttered. You're going to find that, uh, that our house may need some improvement, okay? And you look at our house and you're a guest, but if you walk over and you start moving the furniture, hey, we're going to butt heads, okay? If you start moving paintings off the wall, you start saying, hey, this is tacky, let's get this out of here. Because only the owner can do that, right? Only the owner has the right to do that. And that's what Jesus was saying by his actions. He's the owner of the house. And when he's in the house, he can do whatever he wants. Jesus wants them to be aware of that. So let's just read these verses now, okay? Beginning with John 2:18. But the leader, Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus said, all right, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it up. What? (laughs) No idea what you're talking about, Jesus. Is this another parable? We don't know what it means, and later it'll all be revealed to us in some way. Is this really? And so they said, what? What? And then they're just thinking of the physical temple that they're looking at. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a little bit. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, they says. And you can rebuild it in three days. They're scoffing. Like, ah, come on, Jesus. But when Jesus, this is, it's getting clear for us now. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant what? His own body. After, disciples, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus said. The religious leaders were incensed because Jesus was challenging their authority by what he had done. And they says, by what authority do you do this? You act like you own it. Jesus says, own it? I am it. What? Own it. I am it. Now, this is radical, folks. Just think about this a minute, okay? This is is the third temple that's been built by the Jews. First temple was the Temple of Solomon. It was the most glorious, wonderful, amazing feat uh, that Solomon built in this temple. Solomon built that temple. That temple was destroyed during the exile. At the end of the exile, Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back into uh, Israel, Judah, and they rebuild the temple. So that's the second temple. But when they rebuilt the temple, there had been promise in Ezekiel that that temple would be greater and grander, but when they built it, it was smaller and less. So we have the second temple. Then that temple was raised, that temple was also destroyed, and now we have the building of the third temple. And that's the temple Jesus is in right now, the third temple. This is called Herod's temple. It wasn't even built by Jews. It was, well, maybe Jewish labor, but it was built by Herod just to display his power and his wonder that he could rebuild this temple. And so now the Jews are using this temple and they're coming there. And what Jesus is saying right here is he's saying, there's a fourth temple and I'm it. I am the temple. And then he says to them, destroy this temple, destroy me, and I will build it up. I will. It will be rebuilt in three days. And so the Jewish leaders, of course, they're just thinking logically, they're thinking about practical things, they're thinking, it took 46 years to build the thing that we're looking at right now, this beautiful temple, and you're going to build it up in three days? And Jesus just looks at them and says, yep, that's what I'm going to do, yep. That's exactly what's going to happen. So Jesus has complete authority. He has complete authority in your life. Complete authority. He's the one who defines reality. He's the one who creates change. He's the one who deserves our complete devotion. And the issue here is when Jesus is the one in authority, then Jesus is the one who calls the shots. That's where the rubber hit. That's where it got all tense here that Jesus was now calling the shots. And when he calls the shots, folks, you are actually on an adventure. So we called his disciples. It was an adventure. But it was an adventure to submission, to submission to his authority. And when he's in complete control, you have no idea where Jesus is going to take you. You have no idea where Jesus is going to lead you. But he will be the one who calls the shots. He will be the one who directs you. So now I just want to kind of get us back down to think about the religious people. Why did they bug Jesus so much? Why? I want to give you two thoughts. Two thoughts as to why Jesus was so bugged. What was wrong with the way they were leading people to worship God? What was the problem? Well, the problem was that they were putting religion before relationships. I'm going to give you two things that they were doing as they were doing that. and The first is this. So you can see this where you might fit here today. The religious is anyone who puts duty over devotion. Who puts duty over devotion. Who puts action over worship. Duty over devotion. And that's what happened. See, I was was thinking about this um, personally, that I'm wired for duty. I really am. You know, we were, I got to go to a conference this week and I was sitting there as the person was describing personality types and when they got to my personality type they said one of the key motivators of my personality type is duty. Is that we're driven by duty. And so it's easy for me to fall into the camp of duty. And, and I'll just say that probably over the 25 years I've been your pastor I probably guided you sometimes to say duty first. But if you do this you will experience God. Now, I know there's some truth in that, but when duty is before devotion, it leads me to an empty place. And what God says is, no, I want you to put devotion before duty. I want you to put presence before practices. I want you to put worship before your responsibilities. And when we do that, folks, then we're able to lead people in a, in a healthy, growing relationship because we it's coming out of us. It's coming out of our own devotion. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors. You love yourself. I'm responding out of my devotion and worship to God. But when I put duty first, I'm leading people into an empty spot that can't be sustained. And that's what religion does. The religious are those who put duty over devotion. Number two... The religious is anyone who builds barriers instead of bridges. They build barriers instead of bridges. So this comes down to us understanding the purpose of a priest. One of the primary purposes of a priest in the Old Testament, in Jesus' day as he came, was to be a bridge builder between God and people. So build bridges so that, here's people, build a bridge so that people could cross over the bridge, and they could experience God. But what they were doing in this day, instead of building bridges so the people experience God, by, what the, by duty over devotion, they were building walls that were keeping people away from God. Can you imagine what Jesus felt as he saw this, as he experienced this, that what was designed to be for the good of all people was being used for personal gain? C.S. Lewis says it this way, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. That's exactly what Jesus was confronting at this point. So John ends this section with these words. He says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, so we know he did healings, he did other miraculous things while he was there, many people began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them Because he knew all about people. What a statement for us, folks. Uh, That we can never get prideful about where we are in our relationship. Because our tendency is to become religious and put religion over relationships. And end up putting duty over devotion. And instead of building bridges, we build barriers. Jesus knows that's my heart. And he knows that's your heart, too. He knows that all about us. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. See, Jesus knows today what's in your heart, he knows what's there. And he wants your heart to be the kind of heart that exists to point people to him. And if your heart is not in the place to point people to him, then Jesus is going to make you uncomfortable. He's going to upend tables. Now, I put the key idea here for us to look at as we think about this. Jesus overturns tables to get our attention, show us our condition, and lead us to worship his Father. So he wants us to know. So he's going to upend things in our world. He's going to upend things in our life that will show us, to get us to, for a moment just to pause and reflect on the condition of our heart. So that we can deal with the condition of our heart, so that we can move into a place of positive worship with God. That's what Jesus wants. And the question is this, what's the condition of your heart? What's the condition of my heart? Is my heart all about duty? Do, 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 God will be happy if I do more, do more? Or is my heart focused on devotion and worship, so that as I worship God and I get to know him better, out of that flows the desire to do things with God and for God. Are my actions, are the way I'm living my life, are they building barriers for other people to experience God? Or are my actions building bridges so that other people are able to move into a place where they can experience God and know him? See, in this story, Jesus is saying, I want you, I want you to be people who lead people, lead others into a relationship with me. I want to kind of wrap your brains around. I want to tease your brains a little bit with this thought. In this story, Jesus, that's recorded by John, Jesus said that the temple was no longer... In fact, we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks. The temple was no longer to be a building made by stone. But the temple was actually going to be a person. And he says that person is me. That person is Jesus. See, the cross did something, folks, the temple could never do. The temple could clean, could, uh, clean sick people, uh, clean sick people. Get that out. But the cross could raise dead people. So that's what Jesus came to do, all intents, go to the cross to raise and heal dead people. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the way to God, and the really cool thing is is that when you say yes to God, that Jesus comes to live inside of you, and when Jesus is inside of you, you are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. We become the place where God resides. We become the ones who will shine his kind of glory into the world. And look at these verses that describe this truth as reflected by Paul. And Peter says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So you are the temple now. Then Peter is reflecting, he says, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer your sacrifices that please God. We are his temple. We are his temple. And so what he wants me to do is he wants me to walk into the world as his temple. And when I walk into the world, I want to represent him. And as I represent him, others will not see Ron Thompson, but others will see Jesus Christ. I know, it's a stretch. They will see Jesus Christ because I'm his temple. So I'm going to live life with unrestrained passion unrestrained passion as jesus was moving towards the cross i'm going to move with unrestrained passion that the people in my world would know the love of christ experience the love of christ and be drawn to him and then i am going to live with undeniable authority so folks we 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 just it's a authority thing we get so confused but if the temple's in me i have authority And I can go into the world, and even though the world may look chaotic and look crazy and look to be against me, I'm the temple. And as I walk into the world, people will experience Christ through the power that comes through Christ in me. And that's what he's called us to do. And I just tell you, if we live this way, we will unleash hope in our world in a huge way. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and let's think about this. God, I've just been so moved by this message and so um, challenged. You've made me so uncomfortable. So I look at my life, and I've just been thinking about the ways that I've been guilty of putting duty over devotion. I think about the ways that I, I'm sure because of that that I've not built bridges. But in fact, I've built Barriers. And God, I just know you want the church to be a bridge-building place. And so many people would look at your church right now and say it's all about walls and barriers. It's all about a fortress. It's all about hiding behind. So I pray today, God, that you would help us, inspire us to move into culture. Those who know Jesus, move into culture as your temple, as your holy temple. We'd live with unrestrained passion that other people would know you. And we'd live with unlimited, undeniable authority because you are our authority and we're doing it. you call in your way. Just thank you, Jesus, for this. That's in your name we pray. Amen.